I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Gremlins 2, the new batch. We told you the rules. Oh, the rules. Do you remember the first one? One, you can't get them wet. But you didn't listen. Two, don't let them uh, get exposed to bright light, especially sunlight. We made it very clear. And the third one is don't let them... Uh... Three. But you uh, got confused. All right, let's go over everything again, all right? We warned you. You keeping some kind of pet in there? Could that have been a... I'm so sorry. Gremlin. You okay? How's your hand? Oh. Now, they're back. Wilder. Well, it's rather brutal here. We're advising our clients to put everything they've got into canned food and shotguns. Tougher and scarier. If these things get out of the building, then that is it for New York. We've just got some uh, albums. They say this is the city that never sleeps. <laughs> now, it has a reason. <laughs> Gremlins 2, the new batch. Check it out one time, won't you? Rejoining us are Neil Taylor of Gameburst. Hello. And Brendan Agnew of Synapse. Greetings, fine people. Okay, we're going to be doing the brain gremlin the whole way through. The following is an extract from my Gremlins 2 think piece from the book Movie A Day, available on the Kindle store, which had like half a year's worth of me watching one movie a day and doing a think piece on each of them. There's two volumes, and they are jam-packed with stuff like what I'm about to read you. For your edification, here are the reasons why Gremlins 2, the new batch, is superior to Gremlins. Though I must state for the record... I'm not going to do it the whole way through. Though I must state for the record that, as we said on last week's show, I also love the first one. And its classic status is well-deserved. This second one is just better. And it doesn't take much digging to uncover a cornucopia of mayhem-based delights. Firstly... The tone is nailed in a way the original never quite manages. The movie begins with Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny bickering and breaking the fourth wall, all animated by the great Chuck Jones. And with this, they firmly establish, before the movie even starts, that you are about to see cartoonish, child-suitable anarchy. The original movie has an immensely kid-friendly premise, but in execution, the creatures are slightly too violent and gruesome, the darkness is too disturbing, their lurking presence less pleasurable, and as we established last week, it doesn't pull its punches on attacking Americana. That teacher, Mr. Corbin, gets his Achilles tendon slashed, and is then syringed in a way the movie doesn't say isn't to death. We're talking... Pet cemetery territory here, folks. The mean old lady, Mrs. Deagle, gets launched through her upstairs window with a stair lift. It's brilliant, and I love it as a moment, but she is a dead woman. In the novelization, Mari Futterman was crushed to death by a tractor in his own front room. Now, thankfully, this was tweaked here to allow him to survive, but it's still not overt in that first film. As far as we're concerned, watching him in 1984, Murray's dead, as is his wife. In this sequel, the creatures, both as Mogwai and as Gremlin, are gleeful agents of chaos. But unlike the original, their main remit seems to be not to kill. The focus is far less on fear and far more on enjoyment. The original 
tore apart the Norman Rockwell town of America's past, dancing on the grave of the idealised reality that we were fed. The sequel takes on the gadget age Mount Olympus of the New York skyscraper. The idea of pushing for the future so hard that you swap function for unreliable tech. In fact, considering that the Gremlin originated in malfunctioning equipment during World War I, it is wholly appropriate that this overly tech-reliant building be their new playground. Nothing works properly here. The lights turn themselves off if you don't move around enough. The humble telephones have been replaced with patchy video phones years before that concept was actually viable. They have traded function for aspiration of time and money saving by use of needlessly complicated and illogical automation. And the people who occupy the building are frequently shown as silly, helpless and lacking in resourceful response. It is, in effect, the opposite of the small town ethic. So when Daniel Clamp falls in love with the idea of Billy's drawing, it is at least possible that he will, having learned something of a lesson, decide to seek out the balance between these extremes. Now, this isn't even available on Blu-ray in the UK as standard, outside of an HMV exclusive. I had to buy, originally, the triple bill set from America, packaged with the original, and mystifyingly, the Goonies, I'm assuming because it was at uh, Chris Columbus' uh, script again. Because here is why people don't rate Gremlins 2. The original made $153 million on an $11 million budget, while this made $43 million from fifty. Million, effectively losing $7 million rather than a profit north of 1,200%. I cannot fathom this abominable disparity. I can only assume that the grisly occurrences in the original kept families away. They chose instead to frequent the frequently tonal nightmare entirely unsuitable for the very family audiences who would find Beefcake Teacher appealing kindergarten cop earning that particular i'm gonna say turd here because i really don't like that film 201 million dollars and making it the 10th highest grossing film of 1990 the second highest home alone which i do like 476 million dollars directed by gremlins one scribe chris columbus as a result less than a third of the original viewers got to see the gremlins finally at their civilization defying best or hear the richer, more full-bodied Jerry Goldsmith theme song. It's also why we haven't seen a Gremlins 3 yet, because the second one just straight up lost money. Warner Brothers don't know whether to aim it at adults or at families, and even if they opt for the latter, how do they gain the trust of generations of parents who remember the murderous green reptiles rather than the culture-mocking, child-friendly Deadpools? Although with the recent fanatical social media devotion to the baby Yoda so lovingly brought to our TV screens with practical technology, maybe that late third film may happen after all. See, I, I, it, it almost makes no sense to me that around about the time Scooby-Doo came out you know, in the early 2000s, they didn't attempt a third Gremlins film with shitty early 2000s millennial rubber CG. It doesn't, like, I don't get why they didn't make a, I, a totally extreme Gremlins. Partially because you'd seen the failure of its 
clone. I don't, I don't want to say clones, but things that were definitely clearly inspired by Gremlins. We're talking critters. critters here, yeah. Critters, which I love that franchise. Mm-hmm. And the Ghoulies. Uh, Goonies. No, Ghoulies. Ghoulies are the ones that hide in the toilet. Goonies yes. are the ones that hide underneath the toilet. <laughs> yes. Um, Andy, <laughs> you Goonie! <laughs> Sorry. You know, the sort of... The sort of trend had died for him i think you know winners you make x amount with one film and lose with the next i think it probably did put the mm. studio kind of in a weird position but uh, it's kind of funny because when you the opening to this film is daffy and bugs mm-hmm. which sets this up perfect perfectly because it says this is the comedy we're doing we are doing looney tunes we're just not using the looney tunes mm. and it kind of apt concern joe dante did Back in action? Yeah, he did. He did. He did that like Space Jam follow-up that no one saw with Brendan Fraser. Which was not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. Not as good as Space Jam, but, <laughs> but I love that film. But I'm not fighting that fight. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, it's one of those where I saw it in the cinema, I loved it. But, you know, it sets it up perfectly. This is what this one's going to be. It, it, instead of Bugs and Daffy doing the crazy things, it's just gremlins doing them. And when you sit and look at... And I'm quite certain they take a pop shot of Miss Piggy in this. You oh yeah, listen. definitely. Yeah, that's a, that's she's a clearly a pot shot straight across mm. the Muppets' bow. I would go so far as to say it's this is just a Muppet movie. It, it's got the musical number. Yeah. It's got the. It, it almost even looks like it was shot similar to just the the way that Muppet films, because there's so many animatronics mm. and things, they they have to shoot so much waste up stuff that you that you see that sort of just like framing in a lot of the Muppet films that's going on and. A lot of the humor, like you said, Alex, the first one is very tonally all over the place, whereas this one is not just very uh, silly and, and self-aware. It's also meta in a way that mm. the Muppets films are, like, defined by being. Yeah. Outside of, what, maybe a few bits of Ferris Bueller, I think this is one of the few films I can remember from sort of that time that break, <laughs> literally break the fourth wall so much. Mm. Is it almost like it? It almost feels like a precursor to that becoming a huge thing in the '90s because you have you have a few small examples that didn't really hit with audiences like this, like Wes Craven's New Nightmare, of really trying to push genre films into self-aware territory. And it wasn't until like Scream that yeah, Scream it really pushed. And uh, but, Shaun but of the Dead, really, I'd say as well. Oh yeah, but but they're. There, that was like a building trend in the 90s. That was a lot of what Quentin Tarantino was doing. And it was just sort of like a... It, it was almost like the 90s was sort of reflecting on the 30-year nostalgia period that defined the 80s. And the 90s is kind of like looking askance at that. And so there's that might even be a reason there's not like a third Gremlins movie is they pushed things so far with mm. this. Where do you even go after Gremlins 2? Yeah. So I left a hell of a lot out of that little overview I, I started with to allow us all to get our teeth into the specifics as to why this one's a winner in terms of realising the potential of the Gremlins, even if it wasn't a critical or financial success. Critical, uh, the original Gremlins was 1984, back in 1984. Uh, it was 84%. And uh, this one was 71%. A lot of critics went the land of Moulton route and went, you know, well, this is just nasty. What's the point of this? 
they even take, I like the fact they take a shot at him. In yeah, that, no, in this he's film. very game turning up for it. Now, I, I'm, I'm assuming he didn't give a particularly glowing review of it the first time around. Uh, but uh, it's, it's better than in uh, Godzilla, the uh, Roland Emmerich film, Ooh. having Mayor Ebert. It's like, see, that's you. Yeah, yeah okay, I, I see what you did there. <laughs> Clever. And we are going to divide this show into two main sections, uh, the humans and the gremlins. But we shall start with arguably the star of this particular show. Uh, the instantly noticeable improvement over the first one, which is Rick Baker's work on Gizmo. He took over from Chris Wallace, who did a fantastic job in the original with what they could do, especially when he, his remit was suddenly changed from, okay, so there's Gizmo, uh, got, uh, Mogwai's going to be cute, and then he's going to be a little asshole, to suddenly, no, you've got to make Gizmo cute the whole way through. He's now the hero. Um, and, and that was a, a, like an, an, an 11th hour decision, whereas here the remit was, we've got to make Gizmo the hero in this one. Now, what ways is Gizmo evolved here to be better than the original? Part of it is in the actual structure of the puppet. Um, he is more expressive, he's more mobile in this one which means that he's capable of then doing more but I actually think a lot of it is to do with how they develop the character so the uh, the initial setup that Wing has died and the shop is being turned over and so Gizmo escapes it gives him then the capacity to um, he has that little armband on so he's in mourning yeah I mean, just mourning right there. Just the idea that he actually is a thinking creature yeah. that chooses to do this, you know, the human thing of wearing a little armband, uh, armband to express how he feels inside. Yeah. He's already making decisions. And they're, they're just escaping from the shop makes it not that he's just being carried around in a backpack the Absolutely. whole time. Absolutely. And he, he seeks out people that he remembers, that he cares about. Mm. Um, they show that his, uh, his love of music has been developed, his love of uh, particular movies, his ability to uh, replicate fictional setups that he's been inspired by. So overall, he's graduated from being a sweet and vaguely communicative puppy mm. to a more aware and uh, cognizant child I suppose yeah kind of the way that Hulk has grown up over the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe yeah it is very much like he was a a fairly um, sensitive toddler in the first one and mm. this one is a is definitely a like more independent able to take this this reading of mine definitely has nothing to do with the fact that my three-year-old daughter has just recently potty trained and all this stuff. So this mm. is, you know, this is only the text of the film. I'm not bringing any personal well, stuff here at she's all. She's ready what? to take on a skyscraper in New York then, Brendan. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, it definitely does feel like he's he's aged up, um, even though the they are still trying to go very young with his, his appeal. Um I think they they definitely knew what they had with this of of kids probably grafting some of themselves onto Gizmo and wanting to make him a more functional, independent, heroic character was a good move. Um, like you said, Sharon, that that story and, and character development certainly helps. Um, and and also to serve that, they finally do a little bit of like full body shot in motion Mogwai walking, which still looks fairly good even now. 
the uh, distance stuff, you can see that there's the the, uh, the slight chroma key element of uh, that he's been laid on this background, so that's more noticeable. But when you're really close to Gizmo and he's moving around and walking, I mean, that is entirely believable. They worked on every element of his uh, physical form. The ears, very specifically, seem to curl more and express more. The eyes rove about the place, and... The area around the eyes allows for more facial expressions. And that mouth, you know, constantly kind of dropping open and gasping and talking and emoting. Like A lot of the really close-up stuff was a massive gizmo so that they could have more fine-tuning. Like, there's never a point, at any point in this film, where I think that's a puppet. Yeah, the, the mouth especially is just such a jump from the original because you can go through the the first movie and go like, okay, that's the small puppet that had one expression and yeah. then they cut away to do... But but the close-ups they do on Gizmo where he'll have like very subtle facial expressions because part of his mouth smiles, I'm just watching this going like, man, Rick fucking Baker, what mm-hmm. a... Like, this might be some of his best work ever. Oh, yeah. I'd say as well, they give themselves a significant boost by evolving Gizmo as much as they have, in the sense that because you then associate the Mogwai with being more developed than they have been in the past, they can then get away with not being quite so detailed on the um, the gang of Mogwai. Yeah, it's very noticeable on this as well. They don't keep them as the... The new batches, the Mogwais, for long, they sort of yeah. shun through that as quickly as possible because mm-hmm. they know, you're not here for this bit, let's get through. <laughs> let's get to those cocoons, people, mm-hmm. we haven't got all day. <laughs> I'm surprised at uh, the amount of peril that uh, and, uh, uh, and threats of pain and torture that and actual torture that they uh, inflict on Gizmo the whole way through. It's like he's just a punching bag for uh, a good half of this movie. It is breaking Gizmo, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, he's that whole. I guess they pushed him too far. Obviously, we'll come back to that at the end. But um, I could imagine them doing that today, and parents just going, "This is sick. You upset my child by hurting this cute, cute little animal so much." Uh, I think um, they may maybe got away with it uh, back in 1990 because it was a big step up from the original Gremlins, which was even more spiteful. I think the likelihood of, of kids reacting terribly to this, as long as they're not like ridiculously young, in which case they shouldn't really be yeah, watching Gremlins yeah. too. But if they're old enough to really comprehend what's going on, I think they, they angle the mistreatment of Gizmo well enough, especially considering his turn near the end, mm. which I won't discuss in detail now, because I'm pretty sure you'll have a question on that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does build in a way that um, that it has a satisfying arc and conclusion. Yeah. It's not just random and pointless. Yeah. And I, like without some form of um, like something for Gizmo to do or to be stuck with, uh, throughout this movie, uh, he is again just going to be carried around in a backpack because there really is only a finite amount that a puppet can do. So it really needs to be a personal tale of what he's going through. Uh, so you either go internal and have him think about things that happened in the past, or you go external and have him up against some uh, cartoonishly threatening threats. And no. the cartoonish element really helps that go down so that the yeah. kids see that less as suffering and more like 
bullying, and so they get to like they're they're less like oh no poor Gizmo. They're like oh man, Gizmo's gonna lose it, and then he's gonna kick their asses. <laughs> Uh, Gremlins 2 sets its sights on technology that doesn't so much improve our lives as present an expensive series of stumbling blocks. Clamp forces the occupants of his building to use pretty much experimental tech that doesn't work instead of tried and tested analog versions that do. And I realized on watching it that this mirrors Rand Peltzer's crazy inventions. It's like if he made everyone use the bathroom buddy. He, he even references at some point the smokeless ashtray. Oh, seriously? When does that happen? He, he says uh, something about smokeless ashtrays in this. Oh, uh, man. I Clamp actually says that the building has smokeless ashtrays or something along those lines. Nice. So that suggests that Rand has, in fact, somehow managed to sell it. But at the same time, if he did, uh, it feels like an, an equivalent to Edison grabbed the uh, patent before Rand could because he couldn't get things together. And I just then, yeah. feel sorry for Billy being unable to get away from all this crappy, overcomplicated technology that never yeah. works. No, no, no matter what happens, you're not having a normal glass of orange juice, Billy. Sorry. So how have Billy and Kate changed since Kingston Falls? There's definitely an argument to say Billy has grown up and come a tad more responsible, but not very good at standing up for himself. Hmm. He is still very much the pushover. Yes. As we can see when he... Um, he tries and attempts to stand up to his 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 boss. Mm. Are we talking Marla Bloodstone here or Mr. Forster? Uh, Marla. He collapses like a flan in a cupboard. Yeah, he's putty in her hands. I would say their relationship is the thing that seems to have evolved the most, which I really appreciate because so often when you're dealing with established couples and sequels, they either break them up so they can get them back together mm. or they don't even bother to bring back the female lead because lady women are interchangeable to so many of these movies but the the fact that they're living as a couple in new york they're not married yet but they are like trying to make a long-term what they see as a you know lifelong eventually relationship work is for one it shows that they've both like grown up a little bit because they're they're not kids they're they're trying at least to to act like adults um but it also gives them just like an an extra little uh, something to to like add um, in terms of like their their dynamics with everyone else so that it's always kind of like colored with okay well we're trying to you know get to this place in our lives that we want to be at and so they never make like a huge meal out of things like um, they, they could have made so much more drama out of the whole like um, Billy having the date dinner thing mm. but that ends up being like kind of quietly and nicely resolved instead of being like this huge dramatic like blowout that that is just you know kind of making them miserable um it's it's kind of a way of making a realistic sort of touch to what is otherwise a very wildly out there movie because this just feels like they're, they're just people trying to get by in new york and so that kind of grounds everything else. Honestly, Kate is a really, like, she may be fucked up and have a, uh, you know, some dark darkness in her past. But she's a very helpful, solid, stand-up woman who wants the best for Billy and, uh, and isn't going to start shrieking at him uh, when things don't go particularly well. She's, you know, they're, they're both running on the spot as fast as they can to try and make this work. And, and neither of them get at each other as a result of it. It almost reminds me of um, Rick and Evie from The Mummy. Exactly. One thing I really appreciated about them is that they have, although they've been transplanted to a, a fairly different environment to where they are in the original Gremlins, 
the core of their character is still the same. Billy is an artist mm. and he's developing that into working in architecture and design. And his, uh, his fundamental self hasn't really changed the way he approaches things. He's, he's elected, question mark. I mean, I'm guessing that this is possibly one of the only jobs that he's been able to get at entry level. But he's still kind of gone into an environment where, um, although he's doing more of what he enjoys, he's still surrounded by people he doesn't fit with, um, you know handled by managers that he he can't mesh with and who have different priorities to him and Kate is still doing the I know everything about this environment and I'm I am serving and supporting the people who are around me she's she's taken her uh, devotion to Kingston Falls mm -hmm. and transported it sort of to Clamp Tower and it's not appreciated it's not appreciated at yeah. all but that that gives you more um kind of capacity to uh, explore that whole this environment is very unfriendly and it's unfamiliar to them it's very demanding and that's kind of what this the the overwhelm of the massive pack of gremlins kind mm. of uh, kabooms that as well it is also noteworthy that even though she is stable about it and uh, doesn't uh, get into a screaming match with him she could be quite easily forgiven for going, fuck this Mogwai shit. Yep. Twice, Billy, twice, that'll do. So the fact that she doesn't is, again, uh, that, that's, that's a, uh, a testament to the strength of her character. The, the way they both interact with the, the film and the way it treats New York, it feels like the, the approach that this takes to to New York is a similar sort of swipe or, or shot across the bow that Dante was doing with small town Americana in mm. Gremlins one, but new, the way it treats New York feels a lot more loving in its ribbing mm. because they're yeah. the reason they're there is because he would have been miserable if they'd stayed in the bank at Kingston falls. And they literally like say that out loud. Mm. Like we're not there anymore because it sucks. And being here, even at like an entry level job, even in this weird thing, it's like I, I am in a better headspace than I would be if I just stayed in the same town where I was born. Though their lives do seem quite temporary and uh, it, it does seem to hinge upon the idea that Billy as a struggling artist is hoping to get noticed so that they can maybe proceed on to him doing something he actually loves and maybe it's never really mentioned what Kate loves than what she'd love to do but uh, uh, by the end, like the fact that she's able to kind of swing things for them by the end suggests that maybe being his manager might help or just yeah, I, I operating all of that it. She of needs things. to be his agent Yeah because you can't trust someone like Marla. Which leads us on to Marla Bloodstone, played by Haviland Morris, and Mr. Forster, played by Robert Picardo. What did they represent within this film? They're the horrible little carpet climbers. <laughs> yes. The scumbags. Marla is sort of the depiction of the do-anything-to-get-ahead sort of female. Mm-hmm. You know, aggressive, um, uh, willing to do anything to get ahead, and all about the power. Mm. Whereas um, Robert Picardo's character has the power and just seems to get off enforcing it. It's almost like he's the non-funny version of Happy from is it Iron Man. Iron Man, yeah. They're both almost the 
just these massive exaggerations of, of like Neil said, um, the the male and female roles that society has predetermined for corporate power structures of um, Marla, like her her avenue to power uh, that's that's presented to her and reflected in the corporate culture is you can only get power by proximity and sleeping your way to the top, or or by like you know that that sort of uh, very very aggressive sexual conquest, mm. and then Robert Picardo's character is is very much the um, the like aggressively alpha middle manager security dude who's just over policing everyone. He he contributes like absolutely nothing. Like he produces nothing. He's only there to basically just run around and tell everyone else that they're doing things wrong. They're both obsessed with appearances and approval. Uh, There's one line that uh, Picardo says later on, regarding the gremlins, they have to respect the chain of command. This is this desperate... (laughs) What gives you that impression on any level? These are (laughs) reptiles, dude. They, uh, it's, it's this kind of, well, I've made it this far in society and everyone has to know that. And it's this, like, yeah, effectively, this is his belief system. This is everything he's put stock in. And if the bottom fell away from that, he wouldn't know what to do, which is appropriate because by the end of the film, he doesn't know what to do. Yeah, I do <laughs> like the way these two characters round out, actually. Is it okay to say this now? Or yeah, yeah, go for it. come back to them. Um, but, I mean, you were, you were asking about why it is that Marla doesn't <laughs> seem like... She's horrendous. The way she's painted initially is as a horrendous person. Mm. She's, um, you know, she's got designs on Billy. Once she finds out that he's he's got a, a stable relationship, uh, she will um, affect a dominant tone around people that she feels like she should be in charge of. But as soon as the boss turns up, she becomes sycophantic and toadying. Uh, and toadying. But I think the reason it works and the reason that she doesn't become a character that you absolutely loathe is because none of it works. None Mm. of it gets her what she wants. She doesn't get Billy. She doesn't get promoted, at least not in the the course of the show. Not because of anything she particularly did. Exactly. She she does get somewhere by the end, but it's almost sheer coincidence. She's standing in the right place. Yeah. and also looks attractive enough for uh, uh, Clamp, who's the guy deciding everything, exactly, to go, yeah. I think I'll promote you. Yeah. So overall, even though she is this incredibly gorgeous cast iron persona. Dawn Steel. Yeah. I just felt really sorry for her. Yeah. Um, and I really like the way she, uh, she kind of, her, her arc ends with the, in the spider web. Because you get this moment where um, Kate has a choice, which she in fact verbalises about whether or not she's going to decide to uh, to help her or to just leave her, and her rationale behind. I mean, I don't think it's Kate, so I don't think there was ever any really, really any doubt that she was going to help. Mm, what a wonderfully prepared young woman you are. That's what she does. <laughs> but ultimately, the uh, the little story that Marla tells her about how she did make a move on Billy, but it didn't get her anywhere because mm. he wasn't interested. Kate then decides to get her out, not because she's not been potentially hurt by Marla's actions, but because she's not a threat to her anymore. Mm. It's important that she tells the truth because at that point, Marla has like every reason to lie. Mm. 
but instead being honest and being like, okay, yes, even though I'm in this vulnerable position, I did try and get Yao Man. Um, it didn't get me anywhere, but I did try and do that. That that, like you said, you you feel sorry for her because you you can definitely see the way she ratchets back and forth between her personas. That she's got a desperate edge to her, and and getting to play that that vulnerability, like you said, gets the audience on her side. And that's just a really kind of almost sweet moment with her where. It's it's a very truthful moment between these two women, and again, like corporate um, culture is all about like trying to you know push duplicity and pitting women against each other because there's so few positions of power for women in corporate America. Absolutely. Oh, and I was going to say it would have been very easy to have the uh, the showdown between the two of them end in a far more um, victorious way for Kate where she kind of gets one over on her, but ultimately she doesn't need to. In the original Gremlins, Marla's going to be dead. Mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, Eaten yeah. by Gremlins because Kate does something to her and, like, it's a character whip. Like, that would be so easy to write in and yeah. it'd be such a, a boring, nasty, vicious version of what happens. Yeah. There's also an irony in the fact that she's getting caught in a web because ultimately that the, the, the character archetype that she is personifying Kiss of the spider is woman. the Spider-Woman. Yeah. <laughs> nice. These are all things that I don't think they really thought that deeply oh, into. Oh, no, I don't think so either, but it's, but, uh, it's still yeah, nifty. It's, it's neat. <laughs> Robert Prosky plays uh, Grandpa Fred in this. Uh, interestingly, in Last Action Hero, he plays Nick the Projectionist, who is presiding over another old, faded, dying aspect of movies. But Fred's always wanted to be taken seriously, and it's really difficult to be taken seriously when you're dressed up as Grandpa from The Monsters. I love his uh, his flexibility and adaptability, though, because those are not qualities that are generally ascribed to older people. Mm. So the fact that at the end, when he's he's kind of told that he's going to be the anchor and they do the whole thing about get this man a credit card, go and get yourself some new clothes, the, the thing that popped into my head is he is as opportunistic as an adolescent YouTuber. He is straight on oh, there yeah. with, right, we're going to go down and see how much a makeover costs in New York. <laughs> he's going to live Instant stream his ideas. own makeover. Absolutely. These ideas. Ideas are just like straight there, and he is actually uh, extremely entertaining as an anchor. You know, mm. I, I love the way a point where he breaks character and goes, you know, these uh, creatures may be from a dimensional warp, and then he goes back and goes, oh shit, I'm Diane Sawyer. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the horror host creeps in, and yeah, like, oh no, 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 pull it back, pull it back. Speaking of vampires, though, oh splendid, this must be my malaria. Just rabies. I've got rabies. Christopher Lee plays oh. Dr. Catheter, and that is a very specific choice of actor. Oh, uh, God, I, I, he is a joy. So what, much. I, I, I forget that that man was so, so funny. I'm yeah. so used to him being Dracula or Saruman or, or Count Dooku. It's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. You are hilariously funny. I think somebody, so- uh, Peter Jackson said of him that uh, he treats every role with the exact same level of seriousness. So, like, he will come on and be Saruman and, and, and just be, like, totally dedicated to that. And then he'll go and be in Police Academy 7 Mission to Moscow and still give it his all in that same w- way. Like, you know, to you know, him, movies were a, a craft to be cleaved to, and he wasn't snobby, which is amazing when you consider he was the kind of refined, theatre-trained British thespian who could be quite expected to turn their nose up at low cinema. But you can sort of see in this as well, he seems to genuinely be having fun. Oh, yeah. 
He's like, okay, so I'm being a pantomime villain. Okay, I like this. I'm going to have fun with it. Because his delivery is just that too rada is the only way I can think of putting it. He knows what he's doing. He's pitching it perfectly. He's not quite chewing the scenery. He's just aiming for just under that. And it works so well. He's a mad scientist who trained on the London stage. He's a mad scientist who takes it very seriously. Thank you very much. Well, I mean, he was like best friends with like Vincent Price and, mm. and Peter Set, like these these people who are doing like hammer horror and junky movies, and they were they were very good and and well trained theatrical actors, but they were also making just a bunch of junk. But it meant they got to do what they loved and get paid and hang around with some of their best buds, and so like it was just. Yeah, you can tell he clearly loved doing this and not just loved doing making movies, but loved playing with people who were, you know, out to do something a little genre and also a little silly. Because, I mean, what what more of a challenge is there for a very serious dramatic actor to do than to play comedy in a big, broad movie, but play it subtly enough so that you're not, like, stealing the thunder out from everyone else in the film? Mm. All they have to do is eat three or four children and they'll be the most appalling publicity. And he's he never just... upstaged by the gremlins either, is he? No, he, he, he's the only one who manages not to. And he's the only person to die in this film yeah. on screen. But it's such a great death. It's such a kind oh, of yeah. like, you know, Dracula death. Oh, yeah. Uh, although part of me is wondering now, because you brought him up, Brendan, is a case of if Christopher Lee wasn't available, do you reckon they'd have gone for Vincent Price? Oh, he'd have been wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Is that too on the nose if you're getting the mad scientist? No, 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 we don't want Vincent, it's too on the nose. Get Christopher. And then there's John Glover, who plays Daniel Clamp. It's kind of insane how charismatic Clamp ends up being, given the characters that he's pulling from. Mm. That like This this is Donald Trump meets Ted Turner, right down to the, him doing the recoloring of Casablanca as, as, an, as a throwaway. Which is a true event. story! Exactly, and, and like, with a happier ending. <laughs> and yet, this guy winds up being far more like likable, likable and, and he's He's unthinking, and, and that kind of goes back into how science is portrayed as, like, the unthinking exploitation of science is definitely, you know, seen as a as a bad thing, but it's not so much the, you know, man was not meant to meddle, period, because, I, I mean, they, the, the gremlins are not man-made, and they're the biggest threat, and they mm. just, you know, co-opt everything. And Has Clamp dated horribly as a character by virtue of the fact that he's so likeable and sympathetic in some ways, or is he somehow, as a character, way ahead of his time? Yes. I, I, don't, I don't think you could say either definitively. Um, I certainly don't think he's particularly ahead of his time. He's very 80s in terms of the, um, the, the uh, corporate got to the top by being impulsive and um, an idealistic but in actual fact, and, and it was Lyra who pointed this one out, it's his workers that get everything done. He just comes up with the silly ideas. Other people have to actually implement them. Um, but at the same Very Trumpian. Well, yeah, hmm, indeed. You know, at least he's not having people thrown off the roof because they can't implement his ideas. But the at the same time, I don't think he's really dated because that kind of person is a little bit evergreen until... 
that stops happening and it clearly isn't stopping happening mm-hmm. then um you know that that is going to continue to be something that we can make fun of i mean you know elon musk is probably the most recent example of somebody who thinks that because he has a shed load of money he can come up with the most ridiculous idea in the world and everybody will go do you know what you're totally right let's do that where's my magic wand yeah yeah, Mario pointed it, out that he's very much like a child. Mm. Like he's, um, I, I noticed that his TVs on the wall allow him to watch a lot of different TVs at once, but they're not neatly arranged in a, a three by three grid. There's like some up over on the left, then some smaller ones, then some one slightly to one side, then some controls. There's nothing it's scattershot. Or- um, coordinated about the way he mm. does stuff. Yeah, it's, and then when we meet him random. back in his office, he's like, "Oh, let's do some memos." Like yeah. he he hadn't really planned for his day. He's just mooching around, looking through a telescope, not knowing about the chaos going on beneath his feet. Meanwhile, his poor secretary is clearly on her lunch break, being eaten by a gremlin. <laughs> We never see what happened to her. There was a mousetrap involved, but that's about it. You never see what happens to the other half yeah. of the sandwich either. Ooh. I love that the sound effect is a whip crack rather than a the snap of a, uh, yeah. a mousetrap. They, 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 if you listen carefully, there's a lot of sort of boing and like cartoon noises just to ever so slightly lessen and dampen the things that are going on, but yeah. to remind you that what you're seeing does not have horrendous real-world implications. There's a slight it's, whistle it's a, when Clamp falls over in the melted gremlin. That's the one, yeah. <laughs> it's literally just a case of, remember, this is a Warner Brothers cartoon just with gribbly monsters instead of Daffy and Bugs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Indeed. The, uh, the bit where the gremlin gets fed into the... Um, <laughs> The shredder. There's a brief moment when he looks at us, the audience, like Wile E. Coyote about to fall off a cliff and just goes... I love the, the that they wound up upping the, the violent monster goo and, and gremlin deaths from the original. It's it's way worse in this, but because of the the way it's done, it's not just the tone of the film, but they they even change the the way they've done the gore, so it's a lot more cartoony and mm. green and and brightly colored. Um, but it, there's so much more of it, but it feels less grotesque than it did in the first one. Yeah, yeah. It, again, it's it, it's all played for the comedy. It's all played for the laugh because they just become a mounted. Uh, well, the shredded one becomes a a shredded pile of ne- just under neon goo. And there's still some bits which you probably shouldn't be eating a sandwich while watching. But uh, yeah, I think uh, Daniel Clamp. He's got this kind of freshness to him where uh, you know he could either be truly evil and you'd know it or playing him straight and like you never really feel like is this guy playing an angle here like nobody's this naive you just think oh he really is just this sort of baby man up in his ivory tower because nobody's ever told him no nobody's ever said Mr. Clamp that's physically impossible yeah so that's not a number <laughs> if you've read anything about high up CEOs and that, it's actually kind of true to life. Really? It, so, are they more childlike yes. and less? Um, uh, what would be the word? Evil uh, than we're seeing at the highest stages of government? I would say more detached from reality. Mm, that makes sense. Like they're all the, like uh, the princes. I think that, yeah, that's one way of putting it. There was someone who said that basically she'd work for a, a third-level executive. That's not low, that's high-high. Mm-hmm. He couldn't tie his shoelaces. That is okay. 
Yep. Need to get a butler for that. Kind of, yeah. I don't know if it feels like it's aged because I don't feel like it was ever meant to feel true because so much of this is cartoony and silly. Uh, I think this is always meant to be a a, a goofy sort of, again, very self-aware Ferris Bueller growing up and running a company, not so much an actual CEO you would find out in the world. Mm. And you do wonder, actually, with all the ideas he has, how come he hasn't bet big on something and lost so much that he can't continue? So before we go to the, the we're now in the gremlin stage, of our gremlin show. Before we get to the various mutations from the science lab, let us examine the personalities of the antiheroes. What does differentiating the new Mogwai achieve? Character and individuality. So you you, you instantly recognise certain types. You like the the crazy hyper cross-eyed one mm-hmm. that's mistaken for Gizmo, which. I, I guess because um, she never saw him in the first film. Did she see him in the first film? No, she saw him briefly in, in uh, Billy's bag, but she hardly spends any time with him. Lyra said that it was unlikely that, that she'd think that that was Gizmo. Uh, and I feel like Kate just you know, was like, oh, I don't want to do this, and just went and did what she was uh, uh, asked to do diligently in that kind of long-suffering, burning martyr style, but didn't question, hang on a second... <laughs> These things get wet and multiply. Is this, in fact, possibly one of Gizmo's other, like, offspring? But also, this one's a bit on Gizmo, because he's watching from the air vent, and he could just go, I, <laughs> lady! He's currently John McClaning. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> Back in there. Um, and, 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 yeah, so this is Daffy. Uh, and I remember actually seeing in the Argus catalogue, they really went to town on the uh, merchandising in this one. I don't know, you know, I was only four when the first one came out, but they, they were ready with this one. And you could either buy Gizmo, and I did, and he had little foldy... I only just remember just saying this now. He had little foldy gremlins that went in his back. Um, mm. And like, No, uh, like Mogwai, just mm. little things with ears, and you could just sort of pull them out. It was like a pyjama case. Uh, and then there was a Daffy gremlin who had, like, rolling eyes, but I hadn't seen it at that point. I was like, well, what is up with this Daffy, not gremlin, Mogwai? But the, this little bastard, <laughs> he's, he's, do, he's doing what Daffy Duck did in the 1940s, before he became, like, self-important and, you know, um, the, I personally have all the talent, uh, that kind of, like, long-suffering straight man that he became up against Bugs. He used to be... <laughs> Uh, yes. Like whenever Elmer Fudd would hunt him, he would be confounded by his wacky behaviour. Yeah, never did like that particular iteration. Daffy yeah. always preferred the sarcastic one. Oh yeah, well you can root for a straight man totally. Yeah. Two of the other Mogwai are George and Lenny, named after the characters in Of Mice and Men by Steinbeck. George is modelled on Edward G. Robinson, who was in uh, Double Indemnity, and these two have very much a, like a pinky in the brain energy about them. One's grim and long-suffering, the other one's dim and happy-go-lucky. And then, of course, there's the malevolent Mohawk, who's very much Stripe Reborn. But it's almost like they've exaggerated him here so that he's more cartoonishly evil, rather than a tiny reptilian psychopath. And it definitely helps that we get to know Mohawk as a Mogwai first, so he's... Whereas all we see of Stripe is a scheming face and he tries to bite Corey Feldman. 
the the what the thing that I really appreciate about how they differentiate everything, aside from the the newer gremlins being super exaggerated from their Mogwai states and that being a definitive part of their personality, like helping the tone of the film, um, because like you said, you you are thinking of like a Daffy Duck when when he's bouncing around. So it's the even when he's the gremlin version of himself, the comedy is more forefront in your mind than the danger. Um, you also get to kind of play around with setups a little bit because you've got these personalities and, you know, how are how are these personalities going to manifest? You know, you've got the guy who's super hyperactive and, you know, how is he going to interact with his environment? And it's just a way for them to, to play around with that. And so that way you have the the science lab gremlin transformations become an escalation of that concept rather than just feeling like it's a little bit more out of left field. So they get to build up to that sort of like, oh, wow, now we're literally just making a gremlin for each element. Mm. And uh, going back to uh, what I said last uh, week about uh, having gremlins being like having children for the first time, when Kate is trying to feed Daffy in the kitchen, he's just throwing stuff at her. It's like, you know, anyone who's had a, a, a small child sort of transitioning from one to two and deciding mm-hmm. that they just aren't going to eat that stuff and then they, they, if they are going to go crazy... And Daffy, yeah, I'm sure we all felt that pretty hard. Yeah. Yep. Daffy even says to uh, Kate when she's like, Gizmo, you're so hyper. And he goes, I'm not Gizmo. But she can't hear him or she's not listening. But back to Mohawk, played by the great Frank Welker. We're getting Welkered here. Yeah, he's his face is like almost um, more Gilman or, uh, or Innsmouth fish face mm. monster than... Like even when he's a, a Mogwai, and then it it gets almost to the point where you you could see him like being the the nightmare version of Abe because of the way his face almost has like gills. It's it's more more fishy and and less lizard like than the other Gremlins. And so the fact that he goes to to like the literal like 1950s rubber monster lengths that he does feels extra specially appropriate with that design and. And I like that they burn through that character literally as quick as they do because it's like 20 or 30 minutes before the movie's over and Gizmo just burns the shit out of him. He so literally it, goes Rambo on his ass. Mm. It does. And so you get to have this nice little, like, yeah, we're kind of doing that, but we're going to go through this really quickly and just have it be about, like, Gizmo's personal journey rather than making him be a recycled version of the big bad from the last film um, which is just like a smart thing that the, that the screenplay does on a macro level as well um, in terms of how it decides to to get rid of the gremlins mm. but I mean, so we can well, talk about that when we discuss the ending I do think as well because of the science lab you get introduced to you get introduced to newer gremlins that they set up for well one literally takes over you were quoting in brain mm. Uh, you get the the, the, the Miss Piggy analogue. Uh, her um, name is Greta. Greta. I could not remember her name. I, I went through the Gremlins wiki this afternoon. <laughs> they oh, have right. a wiki. After What's two the... movies. Uh, there was another one I wanted to bring up. Oh, and uh, and the fact they they, they set up for, uh, a 30 minute later payoff Phantom of the Opera joke. Which yeah. Oh, you mean with acid, do not throw in face. face. Yeah. Very... Turn to camera. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm looking through pictures of Stripe, and I realised how much 
gooier the gremlins in this are. If you like, if you look at the, especially if you got it on Blu-ray, the, um, the just the glistening green reptilian mottled skin all over these gremlins. Just like even when they're not wet or, or sweating or doing anything in particular, they've got kind of a, a sheen to them. If you go back to the original gremlins, they are dry as a bone, and the the wetness and sliminess of these new gremlins really gives them more life, like they're, they're exuding fluids. It's gross. Well, they still have half a barrel of um, KY left over from um, Aliens. <laughs> Aliens. <laughs> <be> my guess. <laughs> okay, we're going to do something with this or it's just going to sit here for years. And again, we're done with the sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you hire Rick freaking Baker. True, yeah. I mean, he, uh, uh, the guy before Chris Wallace, uh, you know, is a master in his own right. He also uh, handled The Fly, and that is some amazing picture wow. work. So I, I don't want to, like, you know, and, and he had a tough. Uh, uh, task on he his got head. a lot changed on him. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, so. uh, but uh, uh, Baker's work here is is absolutely first rate monster work. And again, I'm just sad that uh, you know such a small percentage of, of people who've seen the original had you know got to see this in the cinema. I, I'd imagine a lot of people saw it you know subsequently on video and on at, at home. But um, it, it just feels like this deserved more of a triumph than it got. Um, but how do they treat the rules in this second one this time around? Now that now that we know what chaos ensues when the rules aren't followed, what, what, how do they address them? They do what we did after the first film and take the piss out of them. Mm-hmm. Especially the eating after midnight one because that makes no sense. Whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, as I said last week uh, in the morning when it's sunny. But uh, at the same time, if you do start questioning it, it's like if you transported a gremlin overland and or, or, or in the air it really would cross time zones and you would then be you know wondering exactly it's not a gremlin a mogwai uh, what when you could safely feed it so i suppose what? the the answer to that one is just let the bugger starve for a while and then when you're in the new time zone leave it for a few days and feed them in the morning I love that they they spend just enough time to sort of like rib their own rules, but then they're they also during that scene they're also saying, but it doesn't really matter because you're here to see the monsters and mm. we have to have the rules get broken for the monsters to happen, which they symbolize by literally having a gremlin pop out and jump on the guy who's being a rules lawyer. Yes, and punch him in the face. I, I love the fact that he doesn't just yeah he doesn't just savage him going ah ah he he lit like they hold it and then he leans back and just. Biffs him right in the chops. Just like this is everybody who's badgered Joe Dante in the pre- preceding six years. Oh, th- 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 that is therapeutic for anyone that's had a rules lawyer in their, their gaming group. That is cathartic. The DM just says, and then a gremlin jumps out and punches you in the face for being a rules lawyer. Wait, uh, what if one of them eats something at 11 o'clock, but then he gets something stuck in his teeth? Yeah, like a caraway seed or a sesame seed. Whatever, right, right. And then yeah. after 12 o'clock, it comes out. Now, he didn't eat that after midnight. Yeah, that's Look, right. I didn't make the rules, okay? Rules. I don't believe this. Oh, wait a minute. What about this? What if they're eating in an airplane and they cross a time zone? I mean, it's always midnight somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's also important to note that Billy, when he realises that there are Mogwai in the building, tries to do something sensible. 
which is to cut authority. off the water. He, uh, uh, he, he, um, he tries to cut off the water first, which is kind of like a, a stopgap, like this is probably not going to work, they'll just turn the water back on, but, you know, it's, it's actually sensible. It's the sort of thing that would maybe help if he wasn't arrested. Uh, but then, yeah, he tries to tell the authorities the police won't listen and the uh, guys in charge of Clamp Tower won't listen. And it's, uh, it, it, it suggests that even if you do know how these things work, like Cassandra, no one's going to listen to you. And they spend just enough time on that particular gag so that we don't get too weary of it. Mm. Um, because they, they go through the whole, oh no, there's things, there's monsters, ha ha, that's so silly. Um, so, and, and that also, that's all like in what the space of like 10 or 15 minutes from him getting arrested for trying to turn off the water to everyone knowing that the gremlins are, are a thing. It's so it, it goes through that really quickly, but it does make him seem smart and prepared and proactive. So it, it yeah. helps his characters like, oh yeah, of course he's been through this before. He's trying to do sensible things. Like they come up with plans that genuinely are, would work the, the whole the whole idea of setting the clocks forward and like that's that's good stuff. It's it's smart screenwriting, even though it's basically a blank in their gun that they're not actually going to pull. Mm. And they, yeah, they, setting up plans that don't work is a good way of having your characters be smart uh, and not just go, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do, and then letting things happen to them. They need to be as smart as the audience and have the audience go, well, you just do this, and then they try that. The the plan they have with the uh, you know, putting the curtain up and then they're going to drop it and then hit them with the sunshine, the fact that that doesn't work because the sun can't be relied upon is a good thing in terms of the script as opposed to just hey they fell into exactly our trap it's it's a neat story beat to have a plan fall into place and then completely crumble and then them have to the our heroes have to improvise with what they've got it's a great meta commentary on sequels as well because mm -hmm. they're setting up a bigger version of basically exactly what they did with Stripe in the first movie, mm -hmm. right down to them visually foreshadowing the tall window with light coming in and Clamp's office, which is exactly what the store looked mm -hmm. like when Gizmo pulls the shades and kills Stripe. And it's yeah. like, of course, it's a sequel. We're going to do a bigger version of exactly that until, nope, it's raining instead. So we have to do something completely different. I, I don't know why this isn't on the list of, like, good, smart sequels, because it's so good. And then, of course, there's the matter of the gremlins breaking the film halfway through, requiring wrestling megastar and closeted racist Hulk Hogan to bring things back in line. It is, of course, easier if you enjoy the character rather than Terry Bollao. I guess same as Hades in uh, Disney's Hercules. Dante had to fight for it because the execs were like, no, nah, no, nah, people are going to be getting up and leaving the cinema. They're, like, they're going to think that the film's actually broken. And he, he said, it's going to take like four seconds and then they'll be there. <laughs> like gremlins doing handshapes on the screen. Like even if they get up, they'll have to stop and turn around to see these silhouettes uh, you know, happening and realize, oh shit, it's actually intentional. Just this is a moment and I don't think it's really... Like, that is a Blazing Saddles-level moment of, of meta-filmmaking. It, um, it absolutely is. You, you get the upset mom who's taking her kid to see Gremlins. Mm -hmm. 
This has clearly got to be, again, a reference to the first one. Yeah, that's uh, um, uh, from an anecdote that uh, Dante had uh, when he attended a screening and a mum got up and went, I cannot believe this, and ran out of the uh, cinema. Like, as far as I'm concerned, like, yeah, justifiable. This is not suitable for kids. But in this anecdote and in this real-life scenario, the little kid was going, Mom, I want to watch The Gremlins, (laughs) which is what the kid's saying. The pre-kids, sir, what happened? What happens? They, they, they fought back. That's what Things. Stuff. I swear to God, young man, I will never hurt anything ever again. There's some things that man is not meant to splice. He is a problem, Ten. Sir, please try and calm down. We don't intend to renew your lease. Just tell us where you saw the things. Don't patronize me, young man. They're real. I saw them. I know. I've seen them too. But where? In my laboratory. Worse of life. Stupid name, I know. It wasn't my own. Guard, those things have taken over the projector. They refuse to show the rest of the film. All they want to see is Snow White, the Seven Dwarfs. Enough! I'll take care of this. We have gremlins in the projection. Could you help us? Gremlins? In this theater? Now? Okay, you guys, listen up. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Do I have to come up there myself? Do you think the Grimsters can stand up to the Hulkster? Well, if I were you, I'd run the rest of Gremlins too, right now. Sorry, folks. It won't happen again. Right, the Lady Gremlin. Now, I, I was uh, questioning this one because I was like, hang on a second. Is this having a pop at uh, gender dysphoria? I, I I wondered that at first, but then I sort of, the way they play her, I don't think it's intentionally done as that. I think it is literally a pop at Miss Piggy because that's how she acts. She is Miss Piggy. Mm. She is the gremlin's Miss Piggy in this. You can see that in the way she act, the way she acts towards Rob Picardo, who is the standing for Kermit. But, um, yeah, like I said, I turned this over in my mind and thought, is you know, is it going to, to feel very uncomfortable now? But you could very much interpret that Greta was always a female gremlin and just needed that little genetic kick. The way it frames the comedy of of her character is it's always the butt of the joke is is it's funny because she's a gremlin. Mm. It's not funny because she's female now. It's just funny because the monster is trying to kiss Robert Picardo and leaving lipstick on his face. That's mm. the funny. And so I think they, they do dodge a, a pretty serious bullet, but I think they dodge it pretty nimbly. It's not squeaky clean. It's not exactly cool. And being cis, it's not really my place to say. But set against the sea of troubles that was 
the depiction of transgender people in the 90s, this one squeaks by for me. From what they said in the commentary, uh, Joe Dante's intention here was to mainly take the mickey out of uh, daytime soap uh, stereotypes. Romances, yeah. Romance stereotypes, yeah. So they throw in all these, um, there's loads of little phrases that she comes out Don't be afraid of what you feel. Yeah. Oh, why can't you commit? <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> uh, it's... It's also noteworthy, by the way, that Greta isn't violent at all. Mm. All of those impulses have been converted into being incredibly horny all the time. Yes, there is that. (laughs) She also seems to be sort of generally keen for uh, connection more than anything else. And it's noteworthy that she is the only gremlin who survives. Mm -hmm. Reach out and touch someone. gets a happy ending. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to describe that look on Robert Pocahontas' face at the end, where he just goes, <laughs> "What the hell?" <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is definitely acceptance at that point. Like, uh, I've had a hell of a day, so I guess I'll just let this happen. Daniel Clamp's incredibly dark video about the end times and why that's oddly specific for this year. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> we hope yeah, you have enjoyed you then you life. Hit, then, then it gets to 2020 and you watch that bit, that bit comes up and you go... Uh. <laughs> and I said back in 2016, 2017, when I reviewed, the, uh, well, I covered this, uh, they're not reviews, they're, when I did my think piece, that it's oddly prescient for, for now. And it's like... Oddly prescient for now, and I don't want to be alive at a time when it's even more prescient. The only way it could get it could get more prescient at this point is if somebody actually releases gremlins yeah. into the US. Actual gremsters, mm. uh, but uh, still got five months of the year left. Yeah, so you know so, what? Better apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> I'll feed my gremlin, and no one will tell me not to. It's only a nighttime apocalypse. Daytime, you're fine. Oh yeah, true, true. Everyone can go to the beach. Because of the end of civilization, the Clamp Cable Network now leaves the air. We hope you have enjoyed our programming, but more importantly, we hope you have enjoyed life. So what might the gremlins be read as symbolic of in this film? I think they're kind of like the audience, uh, or, or at least like may, maybe not so much the, the audience, but just like mass consumer America, um, especially once you get to the, the brain gremlin. Um, and just these, these think, semi-mindless, semi-unthinking, consuming things. Mm. Um, that, I mean, uh, they they kind of l- uh, lay the seeds of the, of how petty uh, and uh, uh, crazy 
humans can be when those two Karens are complaining about their yogurt. Mm. They're uh, you know screaming about this is supposed to be health food. It is slathered in M and M's. Yep, and caramel sauce. Actually, and peanut fact, butter cups. The fact that one of the points of civilization that the the brain go- uh, gremlin references civilization. is Susan Sontag. Mm-hmm. That it's that, that made it into specific. her autobiography, by the way. One of the things <laughs> that one of the things that Susan Sontag was most famous for was theorizing that if America represented the pinnacle of um, of modern civilization, then we're that, that experiment had failed, and that America was just this mess, and it was inflicting their mess on the rest of the world. Hmm. I mean, she said it a lot more. Um, Eloquently. Eloquently than that, but um, but that was the essence of it, yeah. I, I do like the reading that they are rampant capitalism and they are dark reflections well, of us indulging in our chaotic ids. Yeah, specifically I think if you take the, um, the, the, the building as representative of a neutral form of technology and science and advancement and these are the things that are possible it simply contains them but when you put them in the hands of rampant consumers that's when it all goes horribly wrong Hmm. you could also uh, consider this like a soft version of Jurassic Park because uh, technically when the dinosaurs go crazy in that one that is representative of man trying to cage nature Mm. and nature going yeah no but uh, <laughs> this is about man trying to cage man and yeah. nature going, yeah, still no. Your nature does not allow for this. The rules are in place to keep people safe, but it's also what keeps them from becoming like fully sentient creatures because Gizmo is sort of a thinking reasoning creature, at least by the end of the second film. But the gremlins are the one thing that you do not want to evolve. Like, you don't want them to change and grow because they'll just get worse and worse and more and more destructive. Yeah, and you don't get... you. They do not allow to happen in either movie um, much in the way of multi-generational uh, progression with the gremlins because the originals uh, that, that get out of gizmo are all destroyed and then the next time around they're all coming out of gizmo again so the, I, I think you do get a couple of extra layers in this one um so you, one can assume that the third generation of of gremlins that all burst out of them when they get wet um are potentially going to be more lethal more intelligent more um developed but they, again, are prevented from, from going forth and bul- multiplying even further. Mm. Except for the ones that will be half Robert Ricardo, I guess. <laughs> oh. yeah. And they'll all want to be CEOs. Or CEOs toadies. And the gremlins are already pretty toady. Oh, <laughs> In fact, if you want an even deeper reading, the potential offspring of Mr. Forster and Greta represents the perfect fusion of order and chaos, symbolizing the happy compromise that Daniel Clamp reaches at the end of Gremlins 2 with Clamp Corners, where life slows down to a crawl, because we make it do that. I adore the bat sequence. Batman logo gag is great. But most of all, the reactions from the humans to the Bat Gremlin 
are straight out of a Ray Harryhausen picture. Dick Miller is in this uh, for uh, for several key scenes as uh, Murray, returning Murray Futterman, and there's a moment when he says, I was never crazy, I'm fine, and then I realised, oh shit. I always took I was never crazy to mean that I told people that there were gremlins who drove my tractor into my house, and they didn't believe me because there was no proof. And now I realise, because he was ranting about gremlins during the war, I was able to go, oh, actually, even though Dick Miller's a bit too young to have been in World War II, the suggestion is that he actually did fight in World War II and encountered gremlins then. And if you read the novelization of the original novelization of uh, Gremlins 2, which mentions and names all of these uh, uh, mogwai, it attributes various chaotic things that happened in America in the 20th century to the Gremlins. But Murray saying, I was never crazy, suggests he encountered them during WW2, then he encountered them in Kingston Falls, and now he's encountering them here, and it actually validates him. And that, near, you know, way near the end of his life, even though Dick Miller lived until very recently, uh, he is able to make peace with his, uh, his gremlins, if you will. Well, he gets this nice little character arc because after that he goes proactively goes back into the building hmm. and is one of the people who like y- you end up having this like coalition of people working together to execute that plan that ends up saving the day and, and he's one of them and so he gets to to have that like nice conclusion and then and then goes from running away to running back into danger it's you you can tell that um dante really likes working with dick miller and right. i i really appreciate that he was giving him a lot more meat to chew on in this yeah I trust that's not the brain hormone that that creature's drinking. Good boy. Nice boy. Nice. Talk a little bit about what's going on in this room, because I think there are some fascinating ramifications here for the future. When you introduce genetic material of research quality to a life form such as ours, which is possessed of a a sort of, I hesitate to use the word, atavism, but let us say a highly aggressive nature. For example, that fellow over near the, um... I believe that's a common bat of the order Choroptera, the only mammals, I might add, capable of flight. The brain gremlin really is a marvel and a standout of this film, second only, I think, to Gizmo himself. This isn't just a hand puppet with someone waggling the mouth like a muppet. There was a specialised speech translated into movement system set up within the animatronic. They had Tony Randall speak in his Ivy League sounding voice. They'd play that at half speed, and the puppet would match the lip movements, then they played the whole thing back at double speed, and the magic trick was complete. And frankly, this took Gremlins to a whole new level that a modern day film would explore even further. This is the Caesar of Gremlins, or perhaps the Cobra of Mogwai. That one of these creatures is somehow able to talk, and he's going to talk with us right now. I think the main question that people have is, creature, what is it that you want? 
Fred, what we want is, I think, what everyone wants and what you and your viewers have, civilization. Yes, but uh, what sort of civilization are you speaking of, Richard? The niceties, Fred, the fine points. Diplomacy, compassion, standards, manners, tradition. That's what we're reaching toward. Oh, we may stumble along the way, but civilization, yes. The Geneva Convention, chamber music, Susan Sontag. Everything your society has worked so hard to accomplish over the centuries, that's what we aspire to. We want to be civilized. I mean, you take a look at this trail here. Now, was that civilized? No, clearly not. Fun, but in no sense civilized. What is the Brain Gremlin's take on civilization? Uh, and this actually relates to it. This is kind of an extension of this original question. What the Gremlins seem to want is what we have. Which, now that I think about it, that's the thing. It doesn't want to be a dog. It wants to be us. We want what you have. Or Evil Dead 2, Lovecraftian. We want what you have. Life! Well, I, I think it's just the fact that we, by the time you get to the Brain Gremlin, you that's where it gets to be easy to see ourselves in them. And they're, the, the biggest difference is just they're more honest about it. Mm. Honestly, I, I found the Brain Gremlin is actually kind of like a, a much more charming version of the Joker. Like, you know, <laughs> if you compare him to Joe Adlater's, I am not someone who is loved. I'm an idea. State of mind. Wanker. But the brains pontificating on gremlin spirit or the gremlin nature is kind of the way that Joker looks inwardly on, on man's violent internal spirit. So the thing about chaos is that it's fair, Yeah, is what you're saying here. Pretty much. <laughs> and now was that civilized? No, clearly not. Fun, but in no sense civilized. <laughs> Now, bear in mind, none of us has been in New York before. There are the Broadway shows. We'll have to find out how to get tickets. There's also a lot of street crime, but I believe we can watch that for free. The the, the military gremlins, one of them's wearing a T-shirt with the Statue of Liberty crossed out, and they're basically planning, to, I think it's on like a whiteboard, they're planning to destroy, with bazookas, the Statue of Liberty. And it just made me think that when the worst people get the total freedom that they crave, that very symbol of liberty is threatened for everybody else. Now, I don't know if that was intentional, uh, but there you have it. They, they want the freedom. They want to be outside and they want to uh, you know, be able to wreak whatever havoc and just follow their ids. And that, that's not freedom for everybody else. That's only freedom for the most crazed, the most evil. Uh, which brings me to Mohawk, who spends so much of this movie torturing Gizmo. And that made me realize that evil defines itself by wanting to hurt good. Like, it's not just, you don't just want to succeed. You have to hurt your enemies and know that your enemies are better than you to, to be that. that. That sense of wanting to deface something. Mm. That's in Lord of the Rings, that um, uh, Melkor hated the Valar, like if you go way back into the Silmarillion, the the devil, Sauron's boss. And he decided to effectively just despoil what the, the, the elves had done. And so if you look at Mordor, what they've done is kind of, re they've claimed elf lands and um, the, the lands of men and kind of built over the castles and made them look shittier. 
just to go, there is nothing you can build that I can't destroy. And Mohawk goes out of his way to hurt Gizmo when he could be doing anything else. And why? Is it just because he knows Gizmo is inherently good? I mean, in, in terms of that being a, a, a human characteristic, um, I would, in certainly in, in fiction, that kind of evil, as opposed to the, the sort of the neutral evil of I want to make my way to the top and I don't care who gets hurt in the process. If anybody does get hurt, fine, but that's not what I'm aiming for. I just want what I want. Mm. Is that which has utter disregard for human safety and, and humanity, mm. more evil than somebody who, nine times out of ten in fiction, is going to be driven by a, a resentment, resentment that yeah. they are not good, an, an envy of good, that they have to wreck it and step on it um, in order to achieve their ends. And, and I think that's success worse. would be empty for them if they weren't stepping on that. That's worse because that... Deep down, those people, those creatures, characters, individuals, fictional or non-fictional, know they could be better. They are actively choosing to do the exact opposite. And they know they could be better because you can't do the opposite of something so hard unless you know you are trying to do the mirror of something you know to be morally good. That's a dark place for us to end on. However... Yeah, can we end on something happier? Please? Let's end on that something really happier. Is, really is disturbing. Remember when I mentioned that uh, Gizmo was mourning and he's got that little black armband? Mm-hmm. Mohawk rips that off. <laughs> and Gizmo's grief for uh, uh, Mr. Wing is interrupted. And he is unable to continue that particular process and live with it and just sort of get back to, uh, you know, a place of stability on his own terms and is tortured by the gremlins and hounded by them and uh, eventually ends up... It's a reiteration of using what he's seen on screen to shape his response to this malevolence. In the first gremlins, it's racing a car. In this, it's facing up to the chaos and conflict that he's been running from, like John Rambo. It's very much a, I am now going to take you out from a position of total moral supremacy. Gizmo needed time and space to grieve, and Mohawk... Took that from me. Stole that from me. Killed that from me! People keep asking if I'm back, and I haven't really had an answer. But now, yeah... I'm thinking I'm back. <laughs> Gizmo is John Wick. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Gizmo stole Gizmo's car. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Gizmo is the Baba Yaga to Gremlins now. <laughs> is everybody here? the news I'm leaving today I wanna be a part of it New York, New York Yes, sir These vagabond shoes are longing to stray 
and step around the hall a bit. New York, New York. These guys aren't bad. Incredible as it might seem, ladies and gentlemen. After their bizarre, blood-curdling rampage of destruction, these strange creatures now appear to be mounting what seems to be a musical number. The final note I'll leave you on is uh, it's actually very heartening that uh, Gizmo goes through his whole Rambo transformation. You know, goes through all the training, which is hilarious, and um, takes it to Mohawk in a way that he really gets to save the day this time. And then uh, Billy gets to, uh, uh, you know, use his nous uh, with the electric gremlin. So they both get a moment. Uh, But Gizmo witnesses all of his children turning into mulch. And he's like, oh. And at the end of it, rather than be, you know being gripped with an existential crisis, he's got a sense of satisfaction of that was the right thing to do. Go home now, and he's talking about various TV that he's really excited to be able to watch and happy to be with Billy now. And he he kind of wanted to stay with Billy before, clearly. And you know, his way of life wasn't really what Mr. Wing was giving him. He wants much more of the, what the modern world has to offer, which is appropriate with uh, Gremlins, and he wants technology to work. Gizmo is absolutely Generation Z. Well ahead of his time, this Mogwai. He retains his soul through all of this, which might otherwise harden him too much. He's yeah. still Gizmo at He's, the end. They, they make it very clear that he is the soldier who is able to lay down his arms and return to home. Yeah, although he likes the bandana. Yes, keeping <laughs> the bandana. And true to form to the movie itself, to make this episode fast, focused, and hopefully fun, I cut a hell of a lot of raw footage out, which would have made it much more meandering. And some of the stuff was really good, but it is my job as host and editor to keep bringing us back to the main path. However, you folks on Patreon at the $5 level or higher can listen to that, with nearly an hour of deleted scenes in our Gremlins 2 Cutting Class episode. Here's a clip. Well, I'm ready. I'm willing. Gremlins cause chaos in a small town Mm -hmm. to gremlins cause chaos in the cultural capital, arguably, of the United States. Uh, And the next step up is... The White House? ...declare war on the rest of the world. Better presidents. Take over everywhere. (laughs) Unless I'm mistaken, that is purely there to make old men in the audience air punch and go, yes, these shit-eating teenagers and they're not respectful. I'd like to throw them down an elevator shaft. I could be wrong. Anger at lack of manners, if you will. But we never had manners. Teach you to spit on Dick Miller. (laughs) (laughs) And he doesn't just turn up. He cuts a freaking promo on the goblins. (laughs) And he isn't just a half-hearted promo. This is a full-on 1990s Hulk Hogan 24 inch pythons, brother. So, what you gonna do, brother, when the Gremsters run wild on you? And that Patreon 
funds School of Movies and its production. It is thanks to you folks that we keep going. Our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Jameis Enright, Mark Lutsch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chisholm. I love this film. It's fantastically it's funny. It, it really is a good way of just moving a sequel and characters and, and story forward. For all that it's different in the tone, mm. the, the characters still feel like themselves, and they don't just try and reset to the old status quo, and they don't try and uh, return to it either at the beginning or at the end. They, they let their characters grow and evolve, and as as well as escalating the stakes with the practical effects and the the puppet gags it, it feels like a valid continuation rather than just a a rehash um it's it's just really freaking good it's also just it is hilarious like like you guys said it is freaking funny okay that should just about do it for gremlins for now folks there's uh, a uh, web series apparently on the horizon we might cover that at some point or we might not and actually and and as i said uh with the possibility of the baby yoda who's going to be delicious find me the baby yoda um <laughs> and it's got creepy again <laughs> and we like to see the gremlins <laughs> with... <laughs> oh, I need to... I need Werner Herzog in a gremlins movie now yes life for the gremlins is nothing but chaos disharmony <laughs> and he murder ain't picky. he was in the he was in the penguins of madagascar movie he ain't picky about his role <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he'd totally do it um, but yeah, because of the Baby Yoda, we are more likely than we have ever been in the past to not only get a Gremlins film, uh, or maybe a Gremlins Netflix series, uh, but one with animatronics, where they go back to this and why it was charming in the first place. And we just totally bypass all the CG. Maybe with, like, remember The Shape of Water with little CG additions to the uh, the, the prince's I'm guessing that the studio face. who made The Dark Crystal is probably... Um... Yeah. Up for another project. Pretty good with puppets. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and I would like to thank once more the sponsor for the original show, Andy Rodriguez. One more time. Thank you, Andy. And uh, to my two guests, where can people find your best work? Let us start with Brendan. Well, I was actually just recently on the Geeks with Shields podcast. Um, if you follow uh, Chris Chipman, uh, he does a lot of collaborations with them. And we talked about Avatar The Last Airbender on to uh the two cents uh column at synapse um you can find me writing about crawl or hamilton um and uh, you can also follow me on twitter at blc agnew uh for uh hot takes like gremlins 2 is good and also bad dad jokes i can also testify he does say gremlins 2 is fantastic and he does have many many bad dad jokes i apologize for neither (laughs) (laughs) and neil where can folks find you 
<laughs> you can find me over at gameburst.co.uk where we bring you weekly gaming news. And we're going to leave you with the Jerry Goldsmith theme. If you thought the credits of the original were great, this one is like a supercharged version of that. And that is all from us this week. We'll be back in seven days' time with another commission, the long-promised show on what we consider to be by far Tim Burton's best film, Big Fish. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
alarm. 